Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast where every month we get On The Square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. In this episode of On the Square, we are talking Islam, Muslims, and the Caribbean with Dr. Alia Khan, professor and author of the new book, Far From Mecca, Globalizing the Muslim Caribbean. So thank you so much for joining us On the Square. Um, I'm really excited to talk about um, Muslims in the Caribbean, right? I think one of the things that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the subtitle of our um, podcast is Real Talk on Islam in the Americas, right? And that was intentional because um, while Sapelo Square does have a focus on the U.S. based on, you know, kind of sort of how we're located, um, the relationships to Blackness in the U.S. are not in a vacuum, right? And so, and, you know, and they don't even really begin, like Blackness as a concept, right? And as an experience doesn't even really begin there. So, we want to kind of also broaden out and make sure we're talking about sort of other parts and how race kind of shapes itself. So that's why um, I was really excited to read your book, Far From Mecca, <laughs> um, and um, to talk to you about it today. So I know you because we are yeah. colleagues, right? You are <laughs> also at the University of Michigan, but our audience doesn't know you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. And thank you so much Saad, for having me on the square today. Um, so my name is Alia Khan. Um, I am your colleague at the University of Michigan. I'm the director of the Global Islamic Studies Center and also a faculty member and associate professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies, as well as the Department of English. My primary fields are Caribbean literature and also Muslim and Islamic literature, which is always a puzzle for people to figure out why those two things together. But we'll be talking about that today. Um, I'm also an immigrant from Guyana. So, you know, my that is where my interest in this work starts. Mm, yeah. You know, that's funny. You said people. So you said Caribbean literatures and Muslim and Islamic literatures and people are like question marks. When they see that, and, you know, and you recently visited a class that I, I've, I've mm-hmm. had the pleasure to teach with um, Dr. Serena Grewal called Critical Muslim Studies. And, you know, the students love the book. So for folks who are out there, they love, love, love the book. But they were a little bit timid around their questions because they, when I asked mm-hmm. them, they, they had never really, like, thought about the Caribbean, right? Or the mm-hmm. Caribbean. Caribbean, Caribbean. Which one is the it right depends one? depends on where you're from. Um, and, you know, in Guyana, people say Caribbean. On some of the islands, people say Caribbean. So either one is right. Right, yeah. So, um, one, although I had a friend, my friend of mine, her her parents are from Trinidad. She said, I think she once told me, so the Carib are the yes, indigenous, exactly. right? They're so one of the like, indigenous, yeah. But the term, right? So she told me to focus, like, that's how you do it, because you want to acknowledge them. So Caribbean, that's what, the, yeah. But it's interesting. So that's, anyway, as, but, that's as good a story as any, you know? <laughs> So people have this question and the students, you know, they um, they hadn't really engaged the Caribbean um, mm-hmm. in any way before, really, and particularly not intellectually, which is both not surprising, but also crazy when you think about the significance of the region to like mm-hmm. the world. Right. And so um, thinking so, I guess my phone, the first question I want to ask you is, can you give us a bit of a snapshot? Like, so people, mm-hmm. well, maybe. Yeah, so because I was thinking, maybe you can tell us why people are confused. Like, why do they yeah, have yeah. a question mark? I mean, I'll start off by saying why I think people are confused, and then I will give the snapshot because I think it's important for people to understand who it is that we're talking about here. Um, so people are confused because the Caribbean is not a space that you associate with Muslims. Um, mm. Even if you are studying religion, people tend to think of the African diasporic religions, by which I mean. Um, I mean, you know, Candomblé, Santeria, Obia, and so on, those uh, polytheistic religions that evolved in conjunction with Christianity and particularly with Catholicism, along with, you know, blending with West African and Central African polytheistic religions. Um, 
or they think about Christianity and all of, or they think about Rastafarianism when they think about religion in the Caribbean. They don't think about Islam, even though we should be thinking about Islam as a trans, as a hemispheric religion, right? Which is one of your goals too in thinking about Sapelo Square. It's a hemispheric America's religion. It's not just a U.S. religion. Um, so, but but that 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 leads into who it is that we're talking about, why we should be thinking about the Caribbean as a Muslim space. Um, an Islamic space. That's because since the invention of the Caribbean of a, as a colonial space, it has been Muslims. It has had Muslims and it's been a Muslim space, but who are we talking about? So we're talking about like four distinctive groups of people chronologically. The first are Moriscos who are enslaved North. And I have to begin by saying that the originary Muslims in the Americas are, are, are African. So mm -hmm. We're first talking about the Moriscos, who are enslaved North African um, uh, Muslims from the Maghreb region, colonized by, um, or, you know, later colonized, later colonized by uh, every single European power there is, right. but who were enslaved by the Spaniards and the Portuguese and arrived in the Americas on the Spanish and Portuguese voyages of exploration in the um, 15th and 16th centuries. We don't have any kind of, a, a, you know, count of how many people there are, but we know that some of them were on those ships and we have records of some of them in those voyages of exploration. Um, and then we are talking about West African Muslims who are victims of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, again, there's no accurate count on how many of them we're talking about, but just as there is no accurate count on how many total people we're talking about. Um, but historians like Sylvian Diouf and some other people estimate that as many as 10% of enslaved West Africans, um, in particular, right, not so much Central Africans, but enslaved West Africans might have been Muslim. And that is just to do with where they were from. They are from the, there were many of them were from the centers of Islamic learning in West Africa, right, from like where, from, from you know, places that are now the, the, post-colonial nations of, you know, Senegal, Guinea, uh, Nigeria, mm -hmm. Ivory Coast, all these places. They were from these like medieval Muslim centers of learning. So necessarily many of them would have been Muslim. We also too have records of some of their names when they ended up in plantations um, in the Caribbean and in the, and in the United States too. You know, when you have like 10 people named Mamadou and Mohamedou, um, you know, chances are they're West African Muslims, even though, you know, the historical record doesn't say that for sure. We also know for a fact of some specific people based on their autobiographies, um, you know, two of which I, two of which from Jamaica I explored in the book, right, who are, you know, literate and wrote, wrote their autobiographical treatises on Islam and named themselves as Muslims. So they were certainly there. Um, of course, we have some good examples in the U.S. too, from Sapelo Island, like the the Ben Ali Diary and so on. Um, that's the second group. The third group is the third. The third group started arriving in 1838. So between the years of 1838 and 1917, with the the British the British Dutch French brought um, about half a million people from um, India, colonial British India to the Caribbean to serve as indentured laborers on the plant on plantations from which um, a people who people of African descent had recently been freed, right? So emancipation in the Caribbean, in the English speaking Caribbean happens early on in the 1830s. So by, you know, the late 1830s, by 1838, they need, you know, the British needed people to work on their plantations. So they looked to their other colony, their, their, you know, one of their other major colonies, India, for indentured laborers. And so about six to 10% of those people were Muslim. The vast majority, of course, were Hindu, just given the demographics of India. Um, some later on became Christians, but about six to ten percent, which is still true now. Um, and then I would say, you know, the fourth group of people are people who have converted or rather reverted um, in the beginning in the 20th century for different reasons. And they are disparate groups of people. Some of them are, you know, identify and have identified themselves as black nationalists in the in the tradition of Malcolm X um, and the tradition of other people looking to the U.S. civil rights movement. Um, 
specifically like the Muslim angle um, side side of that. And um, later on too, um, there are growing number of people who identify of reverts in the Spanish speaking Caribbean, um, particularly places like Puerto Rico and Brazil is where I've seen the largest the largest number of people. Um, and Brazil, of course, has this massive history of Black Muslims um, with the Malay Rebellion, in, in, uh, in, which was the largest urban slave revolt in the Americas. And that was, you know, headed by Yoruba, Nago, and Hausa people, in, enslaved and free people. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a, there's a large history, but you know, I want to say something too about how the it is, it is non, nonetheless, even though we in the Caribbean have this huge history of Africa, of African, Indian, and other Islam, um, the our discourse, and I know you want to talk about this too, our discourse is still filtered through the U.S. discourse of 9/11. Mm-hmm. So. So there's so many things, so many things, so many questions, so many things, ways I want to go. I want to know if I can add a group to your, yeah. your, your thing. And that is Arab migrants. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm always I always think about where to put them exactly. So one thing that is true is that the majority of Arab migrants who arrived in the Caribbean to even places like Trinidad and even Haiti, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about what's going on at the Texas border with Haiti. But um, even um, yes, so places like Haiti and, and Trinidad and then Brazil, Argentina and so on got all these Arab migrants, but the actually majority of them were Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Maronite, Melkite and various kinds of like Lebanese Orthodox and Christian Orthodox. So the majority, and that's the same thing for the people who came in the United States, right. came to the United States around the same time because they're the same people, you know, these 11 people, mm-hmm. um, the yeah. majority were Christian, even though there's right. some Muslims. Some Muslims. Yeah. The reason, the reason why I also thought about them too, and is because I wanted to think about what does race in Islam look like in the Caribbean? So I'll ask that question and then I'll follow up with my question about the Arabs and some and experiences I've had to, to that. Yeah. But one of the things I noticed and you, one of the things you kind of mentioned, talk about in the book is the way that, you know, the Caribbean is this interesting place where like the kind of mm-hmm. sense of self is this notion of kind of, you know, hybridity or creolization, right? Like, the, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're from these different places and we have, we kind of mix but at the same time, you know, Islam is an Indian thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a black thing, right? Type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in like, what does that look like? Like, what is it like in terms of, I guess there's two parts of that. So one is just like the general perception of Islam mm-hmm. and race. And then what are the relationships between the different different sort of raced people, Muslims mm-hmm. in the Caribbean? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question because it changes over time. So I would say that, you know, before the 1990s, there is a, there is a, yes, if you ask people from the Anglophone Caribbean in particular, which is where had the majority of Muslims, period, and that's still true. If you ask them who's Muslim, they would say an an Indian person, right? They would associate it with Indian people who are descendants of those indentured laborers, because before then, that is the majority, the ethnic majority of people who were um who are Muslims, but the perception of that changes in 1990 with this coup in Trinidad uh, spearheaded by Yasin Abu Bakr and the Jamaat al-Muslimin, which is a prime, which still exists today and is a primarily Afro-Trinidadian group, right? Um, and that was very interesting because they drew, um, they, they had been in existence for over a decade previous to that, you know, they drew inspiration once again from black nationalist movements, as well as um, their their location of reference was different from Indian Muslims. So, you know, because of the where, you know, indentured people were from and whatever, like where they looked to for Islamic learning at the fir- in the first half of the 20th century and where they would go to study, where missionaries would come from and so on, is Pakistan um, or India or, you know, the subcontinent. That's where they look to um, these Urdu language regions um, in particular for their knowledge of Islam. But that's not where Yasin Abu Bakr and his people from the Jamaat looked to. Yeah, they were looking to the Arab world. And in some ways, they were 
some of the first to do so because it's been true that nowadays um, and no, but like, you know, Pakistan, India, the subcontinent is no longer the referent for anyone, for any Muslims in the Caribbean. That's the title of the book, Far From Mecca. It shifted to Mecca and it shifted to the Arab world. But in some ways, you know, these black nationalists were some of the first to do that. Um, uh, what was uh, Yasin Abu Bakr, the leader of the group, who's, you know, he's still around. He's like 90 years old. But and I interviewed him for the book. He's a funny guy. He's a funny guy, you know, in that kind of Trini Caribbean jokes right. kind of way. Yeah. Um, I'm like, you're you're number one. You're like number one on the Caribbean terrorist list. But like, you're just you're hilarious. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to do with that. Right. Uh, so. um it was so so he actually had a relationship um and and the, this i know you want to ask me too about this you know what we might call the arabization salafization islamization of um of of caribbean islam so he yasin abu bakr had a relationship with the libyan islamic call society um and libya's interest in the caribbean um which is the first like arab interest in the caribbean starts in the 1970s with muammar Gaddafi's the same islamic call societies and and their dawah outreach to places in the world that may have may you know seem to have muslims of some kind um so Yasin Abu Bakr had a relationship with them. And from then on, um, you know, people just sort of start looking, started looking to the Arab world. Nowadays, like Caribbean Muslims of all ethnic backgrounds, they don't go study in Pakistan, India, whatever mm -hmm. anymore. They go to Egypt, um, they go to Saudi Arabia, um, they go to the UAE. Um, and also those places send money, you know, like they mm -hmm. give money to um, sure. Muslims in the Caribbean and to build mosques and they send their Qurans. Um, right. And those translations. And those particular <laughs> translations is what I'm trying to say. And yeah, during the coup, um, to answer your, your specific question, during the coup, there was a contentious relationship between Indian Muslims in Trinidad and, um, you know, the majority that was the majority of the uh, Jamaat al-Muslimin that was Black, where Indian Muslims, many Indian Muslims sought to distance themselves from what the from the um because it was a violent government coup right like armed government coup they took over parliament they took over the radio and television station the national um radio and television station then surrendered after a few days and so on although if you ask abu Bakr, he will say i never surrendered <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> you know um so Indian Muslims start sought to distance themselves from this because, you know, they were like, we would never do this. We would never have armed insurrection against the state. This is a black thing. Um, and, you know, this is some kind of dissatisfaction that we don't share. Um, Yasin Abu Bakr framed his work as not just Islamic. He wasn't trying to just per, uh, perpetuate an Islamic coup, but he had problems with the government. Like he, he was like, you know, they're corrupt. Um, they don't look after the health of citizens. There's drug activity. So he saw it as a social cause, really more than just an Islamic cause. Um, I would say now, um, because in the countries that have these populations that are evenly split between Indians and people of African descent, which are Guyana and Trinidad, which also too have the most Muslims, um, those, you know, it's still an uncomfortable, just like the the general racial relationship between those two groups is, you know, uncomfortable to the point of always turning to violence whenever elections roll around. Um, there is maybe a little bit more cooperation and communication amongst the Muslims than there are because of the shared religion um, than there are between the general populations or the larger groups of people who are, say, Afro-Caribbean people who are majority Christian and Indo-Caribbean people who are majority Hindu. Mm. You know, when you said, so there's two things. So one, so I, um, I don't know when I first heard about the coup, right? But uh -huh. I remember in 2010, my husband was graduating from the University of Chicago. Um, he's getting a master's degree. And, um, you know, I'm at the, you know, the lawn or whatever where they have the graduation. And I uh -huh. befriend this woman from Trinidad, this black woman from uh -huh. Trinidad. And when she realizes I'm Muslim, she brings up the coup. The coup, that's their point of reference. And she brought it up. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, you know, your, um, your discussion of the coup particularly your discussion around Calypso and all the Calypso songs, mm -hmm. right, that came out, to me read that sort of the general community, or at least the general Black community, wasn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily afraid or opposed to, you know, they, they kind of understood 
right where people were coming from but this one was actually kind of like yeah she had a very negative like reaction to so it's not surprising to me at all it was yeah. interesting that um but and then the other thing you know when you said these black and nationalist muslims are looking to the arab world i was like why would they be doing that but then you said libya right and so then it made uh-huh. me think of you know libya is the arab world but it's north africa too right right and mm-hmm. Gaddafi at that particularly in sort of he had a because I know the same thing happened in Panama, like in Panama City, mm-hmm. like the largest, like the Jamia, like the large mosque was built mm-hmm. with money from Libya. Like I know that mm-hmm. also happened there too. So they were, so Gaddafi had this kind of it seems like perception outside of Libya, right, mm-hmm. and on this side of the hemisphere as being this kind of kind of a revolutionary person, you know. And mm-hmm. I think so. So if you're gonna look, you know, so if you're gonna look, you're gonna look there. Although today, I guess it's different, right? I mean, you're looking. If you're mm-hmm. looking at, like, to look to Saudi Arabia, is not the same as looking to mm-hmm. Gaddafi's Libya, right? Not even, not even a little bit, right? Because this is the outgrowth of the seventies and eighties stuff is the outgrowth of Cold War politics and the independent nations of the Caribbean thinking and independent people of the Caribbean thinking about what it's like to have the U.S. in your backyard trying to control everything and who it is that you should try to align yourself with. Um, Specifically in the case of Guyana, um, it is a Cold War thing or does begin as a Cold War thing because of Guyana as a sort of you know, nebulously socialist nation at that time um, that, you know, there are there are redacted, released FBI, you know, transcripts from J. Edgar Hoover and Kennedy talking about how they don't want Guyana to become another Cuba. Um, wow. But mm. as Guyana is occupying that place, um, considered itself a non-aligned nation. So as such, formed the relationship with Libya on the basis of being a non-aligned nation. Um, and that's where it started. But then when the Libyans arrived in Guyana, like for their economic and political interests, they realized there were Muslims there. Um, and much of the, you know, what you can point to, to some extent, as the beginnings of a kind of Salafization of Guyanese Muslims begins with the um, man in charge of the Libyan mission in the 1970s, whose name was Ahmad Ehwas. Um, he was later on killed in an attempted coup in Libya. But um he saw that there were Muslims there, but they seemed to be, um, no, no, that was a polite way of putting it. They, they, they seemed to not know, <laughs> they, according to his, you know, North African Arab viewpoint, they seemed to not know very much about Islam. So, uh, <laughs> because, you know, they were, you know, running around wearing what they were wearing, um, you know, some of them Indian dress or just whatever, you know, Western clothes. And they didn't, you know, they didn't seem to be proper Muslims, I think, to, um to his and other people's perceptions. So, you know, he, he took it as his personal mission to bring them in line, right? And that that's true too of other Arab missionaries to to that part of the world. So one of the things I heard you say was that um, in countries like Guyana and Trinidad, where you have the general population is kind of half um, Indo-Caribbean mm-hmm. and Afro-Caribbean, you know, there are tensions, like racial tensions between, oh, yes. between these groups in general. And so the Muslim community is not may have may have have a space where they can be more sort of aligned, but they're not immune to that kind of no. tension, which is not similar, like in the U.S., right? In terms of like you know the kind of racial, the kind of sort of ways in which white supremacy works, and like you have these different groups being pitted against each other. Um, you know, it's a you know like you know the kind of anti-blackness that we talk about a lot, like on Sapelo and Black people experience, is not mm-hmm. something that like is unique to being Muslim, but it's part of the broader society. And then mm-hmm. it plays itself out in the Muslim community. And I'm wondering, would you say, I guess I'm wondering what happens when, because so my um, family's from New York City and mm-hmm. um, my grandmother lived in Queens and now in Queens, right? Like my, my younger sister, she actually went to an Islamic school in Queens mm-hmm. where the population was prim- primarily Indo-Guyanese. And mm-hmm. she experienced like anti-Black discrimination, like around hair was one of the things that mm-hmm. she experienced mm-hmm. when she was going to school. And so I'm wondering like when sort of the Guyanese Muslim migrates, right? To mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Do these things change, you know, or like, oh, what does that look like in terms of the relationship they have to sort of black people or blackness, you know, yeah. now that you're in this different place? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. So this is an extremely complex question, obviously. Um, and I too, I'm um, a Guyanese that immigrated to Queens when I was when I was 11. Um, so again, this is very complicated because you're coming from a situation, first of all, in Guyana and Trinidad, where it's not the same everywhere, where race relations are not the same. It actually depends regionally where you're from. So I'm from the capital of Georgetown, where people live, where people of Indian descent, people of African descent, and a lot of other people live in very close contact. Um, and it's also the most urban, dense urban space in the country. So that is where the locus of most conflict is. Um, uh, in, in there or in some of the other towns that are a little bit outside, many Indo-Guyanese, however, come from fairly, uh, who immigrate to the United States and who immigrate to Richmond Hill in Queens, which is the main locus of where they all live, um, Indo-Caribbean people um, outside of Toronto and live in the UK, is um, many of them actually come from very rural areas where um, they actually never lived with Afro-Guyanese before. Um, so like their point of reference is more hearsay about what the politics of the country are or were. Um, than it is anything else, but they've never lived with, you know, and, and like lived in relation. And that's something I always have to think about when I'm talking to those communities too, because their lived experience is different from mine. Um, having grown up in the capital and having to have that close relationship just because you're there. Um, so then they come to um, Queens or they come to the United States or, or so on, and they bring their, to some extent, you know, lack of experience, lack of knowledge, or lack of, you know, that pre-existing interaction that Guyanese who were living in more urban spaces have. And, you know, they, they pretty quickly adopt, um, or pretty easily, it's so easy to adopt U.S. frameworks of anti-Blackness and transpose them onto the stories that you may have heard from your parents or, or, um, or, or, or yeah, it's easy to transpose those those stories onto it and to like, you know, adopt an American perception, but um, an American perception of what race is and where you might be as a brown person as opposed to a black person or a white person. Um, so there's that. But, you know, I, I, I also don't know how to transpose my own framework onto here because it is one in which I grew up in a country that's demographically split um, or spent my childhood um, in very close contact on both, yeah, in very close contact with people from people of African descent, people in everybody. Um, and then coming here and trying to understand blackness in the United States is very different because in the Caribbean, or at least in the Anglophone Caribbean in those urban spaces, whiteness doesn't exist as such right mm. like it's this historic it's it's historically valorized mm. um in in a particular way but it's gone like those people left they ain't trying to be in Guyana nobody trying to be in Guyana not even Guyanese so like they left right they left right. in 1966 and they didn't come back um what's the issue now is like these these descendants of two labor populations, neither of whom are white, battling it out over who's going to control the nation state. Um, and then, of course, you have the fact that while, you know, race in relation to whiteness is not an issue, colorism is a huge issue mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. intragroup intra -group way as ways as well as intergroup ways. Right. Um, right. Man. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like really complicated, and the the frameworks aren't the same. And even within the U.S. and within the Carib the Guyana or the Caribbean itself, it differs depending on where you're from. Um, and, and then doesn't also differ. You know, there was this um, matchmaking show on Netflix. Oh God, I can't even stand it. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So there was a matchmaking show on Netflix that was based. It was like an auntie, like an Indian auntie kind of mm -hmm. figure was the person. And, and I was shocked that they had one um, sort of, I guess, I don't know if they're called contestants, yeah. but anyway, one participant. And she mm -hmm. was Indo-Guyanese, right? Mm -hmm. And that came up as a question of her, like, desirability, right? Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things you talk about in the book as well is the ways in which kind of gender, right? And so the ways in which Indian women, so like when the when the indentureship is beginning, women are coming, there's this question of them being loose women, right? The, the mm -hmm. kind of the women being loose and then them so therefore them having to be like uber proper, right? To kind mm -hmm. of counteract that. And so I was just wondering like 
in the relationships that Indo Guyanese people have to like folks, you know, and because I'm assuming it's probably going to happen like in the U.S. I guess if you come, and I don't know if it happens. I guess both places in Guyana, but also in the U.S. Like, what mm-hmm. is that relationship to like the ancestral, like Pakistan, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, that that ancestral thing? Is it are people like, oh, they're a part of our diaspora, or is there That's a right. sense that these people are somehow different than us? Yeah, um, it's both. Um, it depends on who, you, and, and I think it's changed generationally. Like when I immigrated here in the 90s, um, I, I a lot of the Indian immigrants that I met and Pakistani immigrants that I met in New York um, had no idea that this diaspora, this early labor diaspora existed, right? They didn't know their own history. So they just saw you as some kind of weird offshoot or something like that. And I would get repeated questions as to why I didn't speak any Indian languages um, and why I just seemed to be kind of culturally off. Um, But uh, yeah, but that's actually changed generationally because now there's such a huge Indo-Caribbean population in New York. I think it's like something like the eighth largest ethnic group or something like that. Okay. Um, in, in New York. Um, so now everybody know, and there's people who are in like local government and things like that. So now people know who they are. Um, but one thing that really is kind of a problem is, is kind of unfortunate and like, you know, problematic is that when Indo-Guyanese and Afro-Guyanese, and I actually should say Indo-Caribbean and Afro-Caribbean people immigrate to places like New York and also large urban centers like Toronto, they separate. Um, even while maintaining these transnational relationships back home. They separate and they have much closer contact with people of their ethnic background than they do with people from the country that they're from, that's from a different ethnic background. So what I mean by that specifically is that when the Indo-Caribbean people move to Richmond Hill and to Queens, um, they actually have much closer contact with people from the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, um, who are also immigrants to the same areas of Queens, um, to the point where I know plenty of Mandirs, you know, Hindu Mandirs and mosques where the the people who go there are all of the above. You know, they're from mm. India, they're from Pakistan, they're from Bangladesh, or they're from Guyana and Trinidad, which is a really interesting development, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, then you have like the Afro-Caribbean people who go to Brooklyn right. and then, you know, or even like Crown High, so they just go to Brooklyn and sometimes um, the Bronx and they have much more closer, much closer relationships with other Afro-Caribbean people Mm-hmm. as well as African immigrants who also go to Brooklyn, as mm-hmm. well as African-Americans who are already in Brooklyn. And mm-hmm. then they stick to their own people, you know, and then they don't, they do their own, even to the point of doing their own community organizing, like when they're doing their own community organizing around Caribbean immigrant issues. I'm like, why aren't you talking to each other, man? Like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Wow. You know, like you have, yeah. you know, so they, they don't mix. It's almost, you know, it's, it's, they have a contentious relationship within the Caribbean itself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it almost feels like they can't wait to be rid of each other once they come mm-hmm. to the U S you know? yeah. and, 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 you know, I'm, I, I don't like saying it that way. It's very harsh, but it feels like that sometimes um, in the sense of like, they don't bother to retain those relationships with each mm-hmm. other. Um, mm-hmm. And um even while most of them have a transnational relationship, as I said, with people back home, they go back and forth. Right. You know, all the time to see their family back home and this and that. So they see how it's different um, in Guyana and Trinidad itself when they go back home. But they just don't they're Mm -hmm. not up for it once they come to the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I think it's crazy to think about. I mean, that's it's interesting. It's 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 interesting to me and really and complicated and complex in the ways in which kind of sort of ideas of race um, and ethnicity and the kind of divisions. Right sort of both mm-hmm. o- are distinct and overlapping, right? Throughout the mm-hmm. Americas, right? And and that brings me back to the Arabs that I mentioned earlier. So uh-huh. the, the reason why I thought about Arabs is because like I said, so my um, father is from mm-hmm. Panama, right? Which is a mm-hmm. country in the Central America. It's very Caribbean as well because there mm-hmm. are, um, uh, his family is among the families who were people who migrated from the English speaking, the Anglophone Caribbean from Jamaica, to build the Panama Canal, right? In the early mm-hmm. part of the 20th mm-hmm. century um, or earlier than that, it depends. Anyway, but so, um, and in Panama, right? In terms of the Muslim population there, um, mm-hmm. there are kind of, I guess, three groups contemporarily. So there mm-hmm. are Lebanese Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. There are Muslims from Gujarat, India. And then yes. there are 
Panamanians, majority of them Afro-Panamanians who converted to Islam. Yeah. And my experience of the Arab, the Lebanese Muslims, was that they are very, um, they're exploitative. Like it's an extractive mm-hmm. relationship they have with the country. Um, not the country, but, I mean, but the people, right? So the idea is like, so sort of kind of like, what, for example, one thing that I discovered was, you know, when the Americans, the U.S., when they was in Panama, they had this thing in the canal zone, they call it gold roll and silver roll. So they brought Jim Crow mm-hmm. with them. And so they would pay the white American folks on silver roll, a gold roll and play and pay the, the Panamanians, most of them were Afro-Panamanians on the, on the silver roll. And they also had them living in separate places. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's an Arab. So there's one of those places where the gold roll people lived is now mm-hmm. this gated community of mm-hmm. Lebanese Muslims. And like there's a masjid over there. And it, for mm-hmm. me, I remember being just infuriated because of all the inequality that's in this country, right? All And they're successful, right? Um, and they're doing that, but they also, right, for the Muslims, people who convert, like the Panamanian Muslims start their own kind of mosque because mm-hmm. you would go to that mosque and they would judge you, right? They would judge you. They would try to tell you how to t- do your Islam, this kind of stuff. Like this was the experience that I, I had. And also in Puerto Rico, it was not as bad in terms mm-hmm. of that, but there was also this sense of like the Arabs are the Muslims and the other people have to figure out either how to be like them or have to sort of challenge them to be themselves, right? Mm-hmm. As Muslims. And so I was just wondering if like, so that's why I thought about Arabs because I know the majority are not yeah. Muslim. But that was the experiences that I have. And, and I feel like to me, and I guess, and this is good to your book though, too, and your point about where people are looking, right, in terms of grounding and learning Islam, is just mm-hmm. thinking about how, and and even I think in your subtitle, like globalizing Islam in the Caribbean, but like mm-hmm. the ways in which the Arab or Arabness functions yes. in a lot of Muslim places as this kind of thing that you have to, either be like or challenge, right? To be Uh yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think projection of the Arab is different from reality of the Arab. in in our in our communities you know when i said that people look to the arab world it's not necessarily like that uh, or at least they you know began looking to the arabs not necessarily that they knew any arabs um at, at, at least at first right it was just valorized like valorized as the people from whom the language of the quran came you know like the people who you know gave birth to the prophet um Muhammad, and you know it's just like they're the source they're the source. Um, and, and so there's this like initial valorization of the idea of the Arab, at least starting from the 70s, 80s, even when people didn't even know too many Arabs as like they have the right version of Islam and like we don't know enough. Right. We need them to tell us what to do, because, you know, as indentured and enslaved people in the Caribbean, we lost our roots. So the only people who can get back our religious roots for us are Arabs. You know, the only people who know true Islam are Arabs, Um, not even so much now like Pakistanis and Indians or whatever, because they're not the source. Um, But the only people who know true Islam are Arabs. But then, um, you know, speaking to the point of like these economic migrants like Lebanese and so on to to uh, Latin America and to the Caribbean, um, you know, there that's true, right? They, these like economic enclaves of our of people of Arab descent have been a thing in Latin America and the Caribbean for like a long time, not just in Panama, but like when you when you say like who's the business class in Trinidad, it's a group of people who people will call Syrians, even hmm. though um, it's uh, that's broader than just Syrians, um, right? But it's a group of people of Arab descent who people will say are Syrians. Um, And one thing Syrians are known for besides their um, economic acumen is their light skin. So it's Mm. also like racialized, right? Mm. Um, In addition to being about like Arabness is racialized as a kind of lightness, whiteness Mm. in some places Mm. in the Caribbean, in addition to being an economic thing. Um, even when, you know, it, it's not necessarily associated with um, Islam because so many of these people aren't Muslims. Mm-hmm. But there's a kind of, when you talk about that, the kind of, the color politics, right, you talk about and the kind of, so there's a, I can see how that would also, because that was interesting because I'm thinking about, and also I have another question, but I was just thinking about that in terms of what you said, in terms of, um, like, I was thinking, why would, right, mm-hmm. 
Indo-Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean people even know or even think that we should look to the Arab as the people who know. And part of what you, what I heard you saying was that kind of, well, part of it's like, you have a sense that you have lost something, right? Yes. Because of slavery and indentureship. Mm -hmm. So you're looking mm -hmm. to reclaim that. Um, and then, you know, and then, so you have to have some sort of ancestral place where, where, that, mm -hmm. where, that, where that takes place. But then also, and I think you bring this up too in your book as well, there's a global, this global kind of Islamic revival that's happening. Yes, it plays into that too. Right. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a very Arab dominated thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. you're doing, and then if you have this other level of the color, right, they, it, you can kind of see how people can make particular kind of choices around that. Now, Islam mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, is it sectarian? Like, oh, is yes. It, yeah. But not sectarian in the usual ways. Um, <laughs> so Islam in the Caribbean is heavily dominated um, just numerically by Sunnis. So um, particularly because the majority of Indo-Caribbean Muslims um, who, you know, whose ancestors migrated from the subcontinent were Hanafi Sunni Muslims, um, just because that's where, you know, they were from a region where that's predominantly what people are. Um, and um then later on, when you have all these other groups in contact with like Saudi Arabia and so on, they are also Sunnis that define themselves in various relationships to Salafi Islam and Wahhabi Islam. Um, there's a small Shia or there was a small Shia minority during indentureship that gave rise to the one thing uh, I, I, I mentioned in the book is this a Muharram festival called, right, say, right in the Caribbean and Taja or Tazia um, in uh, Taja and Tazia, meaning the um, model to these model tombs that they would carry in processions down the street during the British colonial era as a celebration of Muharram, the martyrdom of Hassan and Hussein. Um, so that, that was, a, that was a Shia holiday that the British shut down um, because they would, you know, because it meant large numbers of people, you know, doing religious processions in the street. Mm. Um, but it still happens well. today, though, right? Yes, yeah. But, you know, I think um, the possibility of what it could have been um, mm. was derailed by the out British outlawing of it within the confines of the major cities in both Trinidad and, and Guyana, um, and also an event in the 19th century called the Muharram Massacre, where they shot into a group, the British soldiers shot into a group of people celebrating um, Hussein and killed a number of people. Um, they were also afraid of it because it was a Muslim, it was a true instance, I think, maybe the truest instance of cre Muslim creolization in the Caribbean. The British were also afraid of it because it was multiracial. Like very quickly on, um, which is a really interesting thing for that part of the world, um, black people started participating in the processions even though they were Muslim and um, predominantly Indian and they started participating in processions and like playing the drums and things like that. And like, that's scary if you're a colonizer. <laughs> you are not trying to, you are not trying to have the people that you're subjugating come together and yeah, no. organize. They were starting to religiously participate and socially participate with each other. So, you know, there's these moments, right. Where, Indian and black unity start to happen in the Caribbean and the British just like chop, 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 mm. chop. And later on, that's true of the U.S. too, when they were fearing like further communism in the Caribbean. And it worked. Like we're like mm. suckers. Like it worked. <laughs> right. But it's interesting because I know, so I know that Jose is something that people still, they do, right. And people participate in it. It's like a, yes. like yeah, a yeah. cultural holiday in a way. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, it, yeah. but it doesn't have that potential anymore. I should, yeah, no, I should add that in places in Trinidad, particularly um, St. James and Cedros, people still have the processions and still celebrate Jose. Their understanding of it is a Muslim holiday, but I think a lot of people link it with carnival um, and, and think of it as something more celebratory that belongs to, that somehow, you know, affiliates religiously and belongs to Muslims. But it's also something more carnivalized and uniquely Trinidadian. Um, Jamaica also had a version of this, and and you know there's like a revival of it. It it died completely in Guyana because of the way that the British shut it down. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say about sectarianism is that um, so Shia are not the main minority sect in the Caribbean. Ahmadis are, which okay. is where which is really unusual. Um, 
because they are persecuted sect in in their place of origin, Pakistan, where they were declared apostates by the state. Um, so, you know, they are a branch of, they're nonetheless a branch of, of Sunni Islam. And there, you know, there are uh, divisions within Ahmadi Islam where they believe different things. But uh, because of missionaries who arrived from Pakistan to the United States, as well as to the Caribbean, Ahmadi missionaries starting in the 1920s, um, uh, uh, you know, as, as some of the population of Sunnis in the Caribbean, you know, kind of you know, switched over to Ahmadi Islam, and so because of that reason, that's the main that's the main minor sect today. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? Because I know when I teach about like history of Islam in America, we talk about Mufti Sadiq, right, coming in yeah, the nineteen yeah, twenties yeah. as a missionary. They sent people to they sent people to the Caribbean too at the same time. <laughs> nice. And so. Um, I, um, I wanted to also ask you, um, so you mentioned this thing about 9-11. And so, because I was thinking, yeah. so one of the things that we I know about the Caribbean um, is the kind of like the big brother to the North, right? And the way mm-hmm. the United States really has played a really significant role in determining the kind of possibilities and outcomes for the Caribbean before, during colonization and particularly post-colonization, right? We, you know, mm-hmm. and this kind of hand, right? Meddling in all ways, you know, really, and not just the Caribbean, the whole hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. And I was wondering about what kind of this imperialism by the United States, like what does it mean for like Muslim life in the US, right? Like how does, mm-hmm. how do, how do, yeah, I guess in terms of, particularly in terms of this question of our, Descent 9-11 and how that impacts, you know, how Muslims experience, you know, them, themselves as Muslims, you know, yeah. a place they've been home, that's a place that's home for them, you know, that they're not new to, you know? Yeah. I mean, the main thing I want to speak to there is the way in which U.S. 9-11 discourse has been wholesale adopted in these Caribbean countries to apply to their own homegrown Muslims um, when without any kind of recognition of the fact that, like, yes, it, there has been a long history of Muslims in the Caribbean itself, um, without any kind of acknowledgement that, like, okay, so fine, you divisible people are Indo-Caribbean Muslims and then this one coup, but there was a history of West African Islam. Um, none of that, right? All we get is the U.S. discourse. And one primary example of how that functions is that right after 9-11 happened, you know, the Trinidadian authorities were looking around trying to be like, well, what can we do to ensure that, like, you know, we're safe? So they decide to search Abu Bakr's mosque compound. And, you know, Abu Bakr didn't have anything to do with 9-11. Right. <laughs> and right. the Jamaat al-Muslimin didn't have anything to do with 9-11. But they decide to search his compound like that as their show of like, what could we be doing in Trinidad to prevent the Muslim threat? of um of, of terrorism and then you had um you know there have been like various discourses from like the pentagon and like the state de- department and so on over the years that have implicated the caribbean um particularly because um you know about five or so years ago a uh, number of caribbean nationals went from primarily Jama- trinidad and also a little bit jamaica um went to fight for the islamic state in syria um and Lebanon. So, you know, you had these like people and, and they were affiliated with certain mosques, um, primarily in Trinidad that uh, that happened to be um in some ways offshoots of the Jamaat al Muslimin, but not really affiliated with them anymore. Mm-hmm. But um So were they so mostly Afro Caribbean then? They're both. Definitely. They're they're both. They're both. Um and one interesting thing about them too was that they um were almost just as many women as men, which is uh, maybe unusual. Um, you know, it's not just like young guys going across. The statistics were different. Um, it's families, um, like co- like couples, and then they would take their kids and all of that. Um, it's not like a huge number of people, a couple hundred, but that's enough. That was enough, of course, for the United States military intelligence to start paying attention to like what's happening in the Caribbean. Is there like mosques that people are radicalizing at? And so on, and then like just adopting this 9-11 discourse. But of course, that has to do like those people are recruited the exact same way people in the United States are recruited. Um, 
but it also has to do too with this complex history of Islam in the Caribbean, where you know, in places like Trinidad, particularly following that um, Abu Bakr's coup, um, Muslims always feel like the outsiders. Um, they're like the outs, even they're the outsiders to citizenship. The majority of the Afro-Caribbean population is Christian. Um, they just they they feel like or or you know Hindus uh, for the Indians and they just have always felt like outsiders and like you know they're 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 perceived as that too you know we were talking about how about some of these calypsos that were um, that people sang at the at carnival in um, right after the coup in 1990 the 1991 calypsos many of them were about the coup and and you know the, the vast majority of these calypsonians themselves are afro trinidadians singing about how strange it was that islam had appeared in the sphere of trinidad so as you were saying when you met up with that woman from trinidad it's not like all black trinidadians were like yes you know right right the, the black Muslims are here for us. They're still strange and they're still outsiders, um, even mm. though they are black. Mm. They're foreign, yeah. right? I mean, which is, of course, the same thing as they are as the discourse in the US. Right. This idea is different, even though, like, yeah, despite the fact that there's this you know, significant history, right? Yeah. You're, you become foreign. Like, the Muslim is this foreign thing to these places. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of being Muslim, so you are, so. Um, so I guess, well, before I get to that, so other question was, I was just thinking about, you know, so we're talking about race and Islam in the Americas mm-hmm. in this, in this, um, in this podcast and you are a scholar and you're Muslim and you're not black, right? So people don't know, because we have, I don't think we've said that and they can't see you. <laughs> oh no. But I was wondering, like for your work, the stuff that you're doing mm-hmm. on Caribbean literatures, Muslim literatures, like how does blackness or what is it? Blackness and Black people, like what is it, what do they mean to your work? Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was saying, um, I grew up in a space in which you know it really you really did live a relational life to Blackness, um, regardless of you're in the Caribbean, you know where Afro Caribbean people are the majority population, and it's half of the population in Guyana. So you're always thinking about relation to Blackness, um, especially if you live in the urban centers, um, and it is different from you know when i migrated to the us and whiteness enters enters the picture um and you know transposing one framework onto the other as we've talked about don't really work um i so i, I would say i work in two different frameworks of postcolonial and black atlantic blackness but they are linked through transnationalism but my goal is to put the Muslim Indo-Caribbean and the Muslim Afro-Caribbean together. There are plenty of there are you know enough scholars who study each of these groups, but they usually study them separately. But you know, like I have, um, you know, I have like political and community goals here. Like I, I need them to be able to talk to each other as people who have a shared colonial and labor history, in the hopes of doing reparative work for these people who are still racially and politically divided to this day. In terms of being a non-Black person, I'm very conscious that my identity as a Caribbean person and as an Indo-Caribbean person is relational to Afro-Caribbeanness and relational to Blackness because Indo-Caribbean as an identity evolves in relation to Blackness. it, it's, I mean, at many times the Indo-Caribbean community has thought of itself as oppositional, which is what happens if you're trying to figure out who you are in a new world and you lost everything. But um, it is definitely relational. One story that I always like to cite is the question of like, where did Indians learn English on the plantations in, um, in Guyana and Trinidad? It's not what people might immediately assume. They didn't learn English from their British overseers. They learned English from Black people who were on the plantation. Um, they learned, they learned, you know, these Creole Englishes, Creolese in, in, in Guyanese parlance. Um, they learned Creolese and these Creole Englishes from Black people who were either still working on the plantations or they had built villages around the plantations from which they had been manumitted. So there's always been this kind of close relationality um, in which Indo-Caribbean identity, my own ethnic um, identity formed in relation to Blackness. Mm, yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's a, that, that story, this idea that they learned, in, Indo-Caribbean people learned English mm-hmm. from Black people Mm-hmm. You know, for whom that's not their first, you know, that's not their right. mother tongue. Right. It's a really kind of powerful, like, thing to think about. 
right? Yeah. And it, yeah. in terms of our relationships to each other, right? Um, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think um, you uh, mentioned you have these political aims. And so I'm wondering, so you're, you, you are, you said you're a Caribbean person, an Indo-Caribbean person, and also a Muslim person, right? <laughs> Who's also mm-hmm. um, an academic. And I'm, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how, what is that like? <laughs> it's complicated, okay? I mean, look at me, you asking me, and you're like from Montserrat, Barbados, Panama, the US, okay? Um, Okay. I mean, this is a complicated question. I mean, you could take them all separately, but you know, as in the, as you, as you know, in the U S it would be complicated to identify my exact place as a multiple minority Caribbean and Indo-Caribbean Muslim, because I am not a member of any really of the racialized identity categories that people identify as Muslim, meaning that I'm not Arab. I don't really think of myself as South Asian, even though ethnically that's more or less true, but I don't identify with the subcontinent as such because I'm not from there. Um, I'm not African, right? People have a maybe some sense that some Africans are Muslims and I'm not black Muslim with U.S. roots. So none of these identity categories work um, for people. It's always a little confusing, like, who are you? Where are you from? That kind of thing. And of course, my own relationship with the religion that I was born into, Islam, um, has changed, you know, as a seeker of knowledge over the years. It goes back and forth. It goes in one direction. It goes into another. Um, I think, you know, in my older middle age, I've arrived at a place of comfort. <laughs> I know, right? <clears throat> Where I don't let, you know, I don't let, I don't let the haters get to me, although, you know, right. whatever, that's, that's not even true. But, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, and then also thinking about as a scholar, you know, my training is in post-colonial literature and critical theory and post-colonialism, as we discussed in your class, emerges from a secular tradition of scholarship, of European enlightenment. And then I like, you know, also has heavily Marxist influences and so on in which you don't really think about religion um, and you don't think of it as important to um, people, even people's post-colonial identities and becoming. And I just don't think that that functions as true for people of color in particular. Um, You have to think about their spirituality and religion and the ways in which it empowered them during the colonial period and the ways that it sustains them after. But then in terms of just being like, I'm a religion period in American academia, people think you're really strange. Right, like I'm two heads, like what is that? Yes. No, it's so true. Yeah, there's it's just not people like to study religion, but they don't know how mm-hmm. to interact with people who actually, you know, like you do. Yeah. It's like if I get one more conf- if I if I see one more conference mm-hmm. panel that has something to do with Islam that's scheduled for Juma time, like for one PM yeah. on a Friday. It's like who's on that panel? <laughs> Oh my God, this has been a really fantastic and far-reaching conversation. I, you know, like I said, I think there's so many things I think about now and after reading your book and even in my own personal kind of um, trying to sort of understand what the Caribbean means to me, having Mm -hmm. a connection, but mostly it being something... Having like having like a lineage, right, a connection mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. way, but mostly it really being a relationship that developed in Brooklyn, which is like a little piece of the Caribbean. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> except, the, except this, except, except the weather is not. <laughs> not the same. Yeah, no, not at all. Sorry. <laughs> right, but before I let you go, I want to ask you this one question we ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so the question is: If Black Islam had a theme song, what would mm-hmm. it be? I have an answer to the question that is the same answer I started my book off with, um, which is um, Brother Khaled Siddiq's song, My Grandfather Was a Muslim. So Khaled Siddiq is Jamaican Black British. Um, I don't know in what order he would put those terms for his own identity, but, you know, of Jamaican descent, but also Black British. Um, He got his start. He's a he's a YouTube youth star, you know. That's how he got his start. And he, he got his start with the young Muslims. I wanted to hear some something a little different. Um, he draws his inspiration from reggae, but also from hip hop. Um, I highly advise you to, you know, everybody listening to listen to his um, listen to his words. But so this song is from 2017. My grandfather was a Muslim. I'll, I'll tell you what the chorus is. So, you know, it, he was thinking about relationship, like 
Islam in Jamaica and what that means for his family and what it means for himself as a revert, a Muslim revert, um, uh, who may have traced some kind of West African tradition in which his, you know, long lost ancestors may have been Muslim. So he says, my grandfather was a Muslim and my daddy was a Rasta. They were searching for the truth and the Quran, it gave the answer. They put their hands up to the sky and they asked the Lord, why? We're not going to worship the creation. We only pray to the creator which is a little bit of shade at the end, but that's fine. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, just yes. just <laughs> just the idea, right, in thinking about, like, questing for, you know, African spiritual origins, what happens first is that the, you know, the, the, the grandfather or the ancestor is a Muslim who comes from West Africa, and then, you know, in questing, like, for what's next, daddy became a Rasta for political reasons and African empowerment reasons in Jamaica, and then him, the son, reverts back to Islam, to what the grandfather was through the path of Rastafarianism. So, you know, to me, that is a great, that is a, that is a, that is, that is the metaphor, right? For what Islam means to Afro-Caribbean people and, you know, people, and Indo-Caribbean people too, who are the descendants of these labor diasporas that were brought um, in some cases unwilling, unwillingly, but in all cases, unknowingly, they had no idea what they were getting into. To the Caribbean. Right. Oh, wow. Thank you. All right. My grandfather was a Muslim. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again so much for being with us today on this. I story. appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of On the Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square at the Maidan. You can find more information about what we discuss including links and more by visiting sapelosquare.com slash on the square or the maidan.com slash podcast. Our theme music was created by Fanatic on Beats.